We're in 1 Kings chapter 15. Um, this is an interesting title, right? I, I didn't have a picture to put with it. I used to, I, I like to put pictures with stuff like this, but it, it doesn't fit. This is the Old Testament Sermon on the Mount. Now, you didn't hear it in what George uh, read because he gave you the first Kings version of this guy. There's two accounts of each king, most often, especially kings of Judah in the Old Testament. And what's really interesting is Scripture can sometimes be very confusing. It can be uh, difficult to understand. Even Peter says that of Paul, right? Um, I remember doing a research paper on the kings, and here's the, the problem with the kings is if you take up all the years, it says so-and-so ruled or reigned. You add up all those years, and it's more than the entire time period of the kings. So the numbers don't add up. And so there was a book published years and years ago called The Mysterious Number of the Hebrew Kings, trying to figure out how do you account for this big expanse of time that doesn't fit within that time frame of history? And part of the reason is how they counted. They had a different way of accounting for each king, so it, you have to figure that out. And I don't even want to get into that. <coughs> but there is something a little strange about this one, this particular king. And it's a case in point for this. Solomon died. His son Rehoboam, it says, uh, ruled for 17 years. That's 1 Kings chapter 15. Um, Abijam is what they call him in 1 Kings 15, if you look at verse 1. He reigned for three years. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. Does that sound like anybody? They think that's really Absalom. This is really Absalom uh, that he's mentioning here. He walked in all the sins his father committed. Now, you've got to go back up a little bit to find out what all the sins his father committed. And here's a screen with all of them on there. I think I put that on there. Next screen, I hope. Oh, I'm supposed to click... Oh, man. Okay. I can do it. I did it. So Abijam, that's his name here. In Chronicles, it's a different name. But Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so they continued doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's bad, right? You'd say that's bad, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. Judah provoked God to jealousy by their sins. They continued to do that with Abijam. Uh, they made God very angry. They built a high, they, they built, built, should be built, high places and pillars on every hill. They utilized male cult prostitutes. That's surely not in Leviticus, right? You don't read any version that, of the Leviticus that says here's where the male cult prostitutes live. They did according to abominations of the nations. And then they added one other, uh, and it is, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord. And that's what it says in this passage. So he walked in all the sins his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the father, heart of his father David was. Nevertheless, this is a king of Judah, remember, for David's sake the Lord God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. It's not like he didn't notice that. And there was war. And this is all that the kings said. The king's account just says this about Abijam. And if that's all it said, you'd say, man, this guy was terrible. Uh, and he's certainly not somebody that you'd want to remember. But God put up with him to keep a promise to David because David's line had to keep the promise, right, from 2 Samuel 7. So for the sake of David, God continued to bless Abijam. But here's the thing. And this is where it gets a little confusing. If you'll turn now to 2 Chronicles, just a little further on. 2 Chronicles chapter 13. His name is not Abijam now. His name is Abijah. 
That's not a really big difference, right? But it is a difference. And you're like, this is kind of confusing, but it gives a totally different account. He was, uh, the Chronicles will say at the end, they only cover kings of Judah for the most part. And at the end of every reign of a king of Judah, it will say he was terrible or he was good. But in this case, the one time, it doesn't say an evaluation. They issue a report card and they put like incomplete. We're not, we haven't decided whether he's good or not. But there's one account given, and I want you to join me at verse 2, and we're going to read this account. And he's going to give this amazing sermon. I call it the Sermon on the Mount in the Old Testament because it's on a mountain, and it's pretty effective. And so here we go, verse 2. Now there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam, who's of the northern tribes, right? Abijah went out to battle, having an army of valiant men of war, 400,000 chosen men. And Jeroboam drew up his line of battle against him with 800,000 chosen mighty warriors. He was doubled up by his enemy. Then Abijah stood up on a mountain Zemariam, that is in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Hear me, O Jeroboam, and all Israel. There's three points to this sermon, and I want you to hear it. It's three points and a trumpet call, not a poem. Replace the poem with a trumpet. And that's what he's saying. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Do you not know, he says, that God's promise is with us of the southern kingdom? We are the children of David, and we're going to have a perpetual kingdom. You shouldn't be messing with us. That's his first point. Sermon point number one, I'm David's line. I have the protective promise. You don't. It's a great theology, right? Keep going. Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord, and certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. Point number two, the kingdom was divided because of Jeroboam. That's not really true, but there is some truth to it. That's point number two. It's y'all's fault that this is all messed up. Point number three begins in verse 8. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the, land, in the hand of the sons of David, because you're a great multitude. You think because you have a bunch of people, 800,000. But, but, but notice also, you have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made as gods for you. Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron, the Levites, and you've made priests for yourselves like the peoples of other lands? You've just let anybody come in and be priests. Whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are no gods. So you've replaced God with two calves. You replaced Levite priests with just anybody who will serve. You guys are really in a mess because you aren't faithful to God. But as for us, he says... The Lord is our God. We've not forsaken him. That's not exactly true, but there's a kernel there. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are sons of Aaron, the Levites, for their service. They offered the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings and incenses of, of sweet spices set out on the showbread on the table of pure gold and care for the golden lampstand and that lamps may burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests, his priests with their battle trumpets will sound the call to battle against you, O sons of Israel. Do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you can't succeed. 
That's a great sermon point. We are still being faithful. We are using the temple. We're making the sacrifices God asked us to. We are doing right. You guys, on the other hand, have made mistakes every time you turn. You really should be shaking in your boots. Now, while he's preaching this sermon, he feels like you do on some Sunday mornings. He's droning on and on and on a long sermon. He's got three points. He's about to blow the trumpet. While he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, Jeroboam has gotten people to set up ambushes both before, in front of, and behind him. He doesn't even recognize while he's droning on and on, as I'm told, a 35-minute sermon could have been shrunk, right? And while you're doing all that, he is creeping up behind him, and he's going to ambush him from the back. He's in trouble. Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to come upon them from behind, it says in verse 13. Thus his troops were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind him. And when Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front of and behind them. And they cried to the Lord. And the priests blew the trumpets. The, the, the priests went ahead and did that. That's a numbers thing. The book of Numbers talks about how to blow the trumpets. And they cried to God. And the men of Judah raised the battle shout. The men of Judah shouted. That's all they did. They didn't do much valiant stuff. God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The men of Israel fled before Judah, and God gave them into their hand. Abijah and people struck them with a great force so that they fell slain, 500,000 chosen men. Of the 800,000, 300,000 got home, and the others were dead. So the men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed. Why? Verse 18 says, because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam, took cities from him, Bethel. The reason that's important is that's the southernmost one that he set up a golden calf. They took the city back. Jeroboam did not recover his power in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him down, and he died. But Abijah grew mighty, and what did he do? He took 14 wives and 22 sons, 16 daughters, and the rest of his actions, his ways, and saying are written in the story of the prophet Iddo. That's the only thing ever said about him, but it's, the king's ignores that. King's account ignores this completely, but here's this great sermon, right? What do you draw from this? What's the value of this? I want to do a chart. I like charts. There's kind of two parts to your life, at least your Christian life. You've got the theology you're supposed to present and pre preach and true. You're supposed to believe truth. You're supposed to do truth when it comes to your doctrine. But then you've got your life and your morality. Do you actually live it? One of them is largely confined to like your intellect and maybe your Sunday morning hour, maybe your Sunday night hour, maybe a Wednesday class time. The other is everything you do, taking that theology into real life. I'll call one of them theology, our doctrine, and the other one morality, or your life. It's how you actually live. And there's, there's different combinations. We want you to notice in this passage that he preaches a great sermon that's full of doctrinal truth. But we know from the king's account, he's not actually living it very well. They're provoking the Lord to jealousy. They're doing like the nations around them. They're doing their church thing on, on, on Saturday, 
and they're doing their little sacrifices and lampstand stuff, and they've got the right priests, and they've got the right teaching, and they've got the right kind of stuff when they go and do their formal temple thing. But once they leave the temple, they really don't care much about what God has to say. And that leads to these different things. And I want you to notice the one, of course, we want is this one right here. We want to teach the truth and hold to that truth and defend the truth, but we actually also think we should live it. We actually think that when we leave here, what we believe here and what we hear here and what we sing here really should appear in our daily life. That when you go to Wendy's and they're really slow, something about what you heard here should govern how you act there. Now, the funny thing is, churches of Christ are kind of, I don't want to say this of everybody, but I just remember kind of caricature, right? Sometimes we end up actually right here. And what I mean by that is, we will fight anybody for making sure you make this hour as close to Scripture as you can. You make sure you do that Lord's Supper every week, and you make sure that you don't do the instrument, and you make sure that that hour is right according to Scripture. But if you go out into town, and you kind of cheat people a little bit on the side, or maybe, maybe you're rude and obnoxious, that's okay. Grace covers morality. Grace covers bad morality, but grace doesn't cover bad theology. These other churches around us are wrong on a a thing or two. Man, they're doomed because theology doesn't require grace. you got a habit book, right? That's kind of what I remember hearing in my lifetime. So the the, the funny thing is we, we find a way to do this. And really, this is where Abijam was. He had a great sermon, y'all. It's a sermon I would have said amen to nearly everything in it. And it was right down the line of what God wanted. But man, once you get outside of uh, worship, I, I don't know that they were really doing much of that. Now over here is somebody who <laughs> doesn't believe right, doesn't act right, and that's pretty common. And that's just somebody who doesn't care, right? The Babylonians would be like this. Habakkuk is up here. Habakkuk is going, God, how can you use people who have bad theology and bad morality to capture your own people? They're more wicked than your own people. How can you use people from that quadrant uh, uh, to, to punish people who are over here? How can you do that? It's a great question. God still uses people in that quadrant. And I guess it's possible to be here too. I guess you can have bad theology, incorrect doctrine, and still live a good life, but Scripture has a very hard time believing that's possible. Because Scripture's like, you know, if if your doctrine's wrong, it's going to come out in your behavior. But I, I think it's possible, at least for a time, to be there. Here's what I want us to be at Valley View, right? I want us to be people, yes, we want the theology, we want our doctrine right. Listen, I, there's, there's lots of other people who are very um, pure in heart. They have great sincerity, sincerity to, to what they're doing, but, but I just can't go along with their theology, their doctrine, because it just doesn't seem, according to my understanding, to be right. I'll show grace to them anyway, right? I mean, I'll be nice and kind to them, and I won't bad talk them, but I just don't feel comfortable with that, that kind of thing. But here's the thing. I, I don't want to get lazy in my morality either. I want us to be people who, when you go off the hill, 
We get up here, we want to do it as right as we can. We want to honor God in the way that we do this, what we do here, and what we teach in Bible class. I want that to be right along with Scripture, but I also want us to have a great, great desire when we go down from this hill into Valley View and other places. We take that doctrine with us, and it informs how we actually live. Tone of voice, how we treat people, and how we act. That's where we should want to be. This story is really bizarre to me because this, these people, God's just using what he can, right? But there's two things I want to say as we wrap this up. One is this. This is what Paul says to Timothy. Insight number one. He tells him what he needs to be teaching the people in verse, chapter 4, 1 Timothy. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, Be diligent in all these matters. Give yourself completely to them so that everybody can see your progress. You're living before people. Let them see your progress. Now watch what he says. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Don't give yourself to being lazy in either one of them. Give attention to your doctrine, but give attention to your life. It's great that you worship properly, but how do you treat your spouse? How do you treat your kids? And how do you treat the people you work with? How do you treat the people you interact with? Total strangers. So watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere and keep walking in them because you'll save both yourself and your hearers because we care about our doctrine, but we also care about our life. But there's one other insight I think is quite important, especially from the king's account. The reason God accepted Abijah and allowed him to be king and blessed him is on account of a promise and a covenant he made with David, his grandfather. On account of another person, God blesses Abijah. And what we know is, Aren't you grateful God treats us according to the covenant he made with us in Christ rather than just our behavior? Isn't it a great thing that because of what God has promised us in Christ and we are in Christ that he accepts us even with our flaws, even with our inevitable shortcomings? When he looks at us, he sees Christ. And on account of him, he blesses us and looks at us as perfect in his sight. I think Abijah received that blessing because of his relationship to David. We receive this blessing because of the blessing in Christ. If there's anyone here who's never responded, hasn't responded to Christ, here's why you should. The only way you can be right with God, the only way you'll ever spend eternity with him, to him be your God and you be his person, the only way you'll do that is through a covenant with Christ. And if you will respond to him, the way you become in Christ, he says, is when you are immersed in the waters of baptism, you become a child of Abraham, and that becomes a child of God through Christ. That's your only hope. And this morning, somebody did that. Did we announce that? You may announce that at the beginning. Is Ella here? She's not here, is she? Okay, so 
Jenna's friend Ella has been coming with. She was baptized after morning worship this morning. A group of us got to stay and watch that. She chose it's time to decide that. And she is going to be with God one day because of what Jesus did for her and her trust in it. And that's the only basis any of us are going to be there that day. And so when God looks at us, he sees his son. And he remembers that covenant and he blesses us because of it. And if you stand ready to receive that covenant promise and, and, and partake of it tonight, we stand ready to receive you as we stand and as we sing together.